Game Cool Books, Episode 15, Difficult Critters. Welcome. This is Wesley Schantz. We're approaching the middle of the Golden Compass by Philip Pullman. For all of Chapter 10, Lyra went around Trollicend in the company of Fardacorum. But the first thing we see in Chapter 11, Armor, is her going back to her cabin by herself. For once, she does not try to insert herself among the leaders to overhear or influence their decisions. What's more, she reads the location of the bear's armor in the alethiometer, finds out what sort of difficulties they'll face trying to reclaim it, whether told directly from the instrument or by her own inference based on the location it does give her, if that's a distinction which makes sense at this point when she's so attuned in her reading that it seems almost effortless, what it takes the whole chapter to tell, she in some measure reads in just five minutes. What's more, not only does she absent herself from John Fa and Father Coram's counsels, she doesn't go running to tell them what she's discovered, but instead sits back. The reasons were given are astonishing. She wondered whether to go to the saloon and tell John Fa and the others, but decided that they'd ask her if they wanted to know. Perhaps they knew already. More than a remarkable bit of restraint from Lyra, this is a display of theory of mind and humility, unlike what we generally see from her. She takes the time thus recovered from barging her way into the discussion once more, to think not just of the Egyptians, but of the bear. By extension, she muses on those extravagant extremes raised in the previous chapter, humans without demons by them, the witches, and human-like intelligent beings without demons. She lay on her bunk thinking of that savage, mighty bear and the careless way he drank his fiery spirit and the loneliness of him in his dirty lean-to, how different it was to be human, with one's demon always there to talk to. In the silence of the still ship, without the continual creak of metal and timber, or the rumble of the engine or the rush of water along the side, Lyra gradually fell asleep, pantalimon on her pillow sleeping too. This may well give us pause as readers. Either we aren't human by Lyra's standards, which is difficult to accept, or we have got demons all along without knowing it. We experience here a moment of the kind of innocence just like we see time and again with respect to Lyra. At least we experience it imaginatively as we are brought to awareness that we have such a glaring lack of self-knowledge on this point of the demon. When no one comes to ask her, Lyra, like her near namesake, Lyca, in Blake's poems, sleeps. We'll see her hold back a number of times in this chapter. We've been told that reading the alethiometer involves just such holding back of patience of a kind, so perhaps it's not too surprising. And sleep is a curious kind of stasis, since in its suspension, dream adventures can be happening all the while. It's not unlike the stillness mixed with activity in reading a book. So here she is dreaming of her father imprisoned and then awakening for no reason, we're told. It sounds suspiciously like destiny at work. It's a situation with near echoes later in the chapter, too. Here, by a concatenation of natural enough desires, to try on her cold-weather gear, to go out on deck once she's too warm, all traceable to that mysterious no reason at all, Lyra gets her first view of the aurora. At once she saw that something strange was happening in the sky. She thought it was clouds moving and trembling under a nervous agitation, but Pantalaimon whispered, the aurora. Her wonder was so strong that she had to clutch the rail to keep from falling. The sight filled the northern sky. The immensity of it was scarcely conceivable, as if from heaven itself Great curtains of delicate light hung and trembled, pale green and rose pink, and as transparent as the most fragile fabric, 
and at the bottom edge of profound and fiery crimson like the fires of hell, they swung and shimmered loosely with more grace than the most skillful dancer. Lyra thought she could even hear them, a vast, distant, whispering swish. In the evanescent delicacy, she felt something as profound as she'd felt close to the bear. She was moved by it. It was so beautiful it was almost holy. She felt tears prick her eyes, and the tears splintered the light even further into prismatic rainbows. It wasn't long before she found herself entering the same kind of trance as when she consulted the alethiometer. Perhaps, she thought calmly, whatever moves the alethiometer's needle is making the aurora glow, too. It might even be dust itself. She thought that without noticing she'd thought it, and she soon forgot it and only remembered it much later. So insistently, the narrator there displays some skill and some coyness, as if from heaven. Heaven's capitalized, and it was almost holy. So we are strongly hinted at a sacredness of this vision. On the other hand, it's... Uh, a wonder that um, moves her physically. Um, it's compared to physical objects, and we might remember it a little later when we hear about a very overtly physical object, the armor, compared to silken robes. Um, fires of hell are there too, of course. And in the image of the splintering in the tears and rainbows, the sentence itself is splintered by not one, but two semicolons, a very unusual, maybe unique usage in Pullman's work. Uh, I guess I'll have to watch for that. Uh, and again, we'll see Lyra tear up again later in the chapter as well. There's plenty of things Lyra hasn't noticed, like how odd it was for the master to say he couldn't prevent her going with Mrs. Coulter how careful the Costas were about any signs of people on the lookout for her. Um, but this bit of interior not noticing, in the midst of her feeling moved uh, to the point of tears, seems like an interesting consequence of her negative capability state of mind. Tucking a detail away for later conscious attention while concealing it from herself for the moment. How many such thoughts might a reader have, which work upon us invisibly long after we put down the story. Certainly, the gripping wonder of the Northern Lights is the primary thing for Pullman. It takes it for his title. And if dust, maybe consciousness, attention, or that strange mixture of attention and inattention, if that's what makes it happen, we've nevertheless got a long journey before us to understand what that really means. It goes on. And as she gazed, this, the image of a city seemed to form itself behind the veils and streams of translucent color, towers and domes, honey-colored temples and colonnades, broad boulevards and sunlit parkland. Looking at it gave her a sense of vertigo, as if she were looking not up but down, and across a gulf so wide that nothing could ever pass over it. It was a whole universe away. Now thinking about that city again too much may well induce some vertigo in us. Not quite sure what it's doing there or what's causing the vision, whether it's something in Lyra, something Lord Asriel might be doing, or the property of the Northern Lights all by itself. And... Uh, Adding to this sense of disorientation, of course, is that something moves across it. In appearance, the closest thing we've yet seen is perhaps the spy fly. Recall it again later with reference to Yorick. But in fact, it's that other uncanny modulation on the human, the witch's demon, Kaisa. Grey goose crowned with a patch of white. His arrival, without his person, is the corroboration of Father Coram's story, and he comes in response to their summons. 
elegant and wild, like Asriel or Lyra herself. He comes so unexpectedly, so quickly, that is, and so unaccompanied, that he's spooky to Lyra, to the point she feels like she's entertaining a ghost. And that looks back to the night ghasts, and then ahead to the lost child in the next chapter. To our surprise, the first thing we hear from the goose demon is him telling Lyra she is talked about among witches. Wasn't that supposed to be kept from her? But as it turns out, he's not referring to the prophecy, at least not explicitly. With that to hold our attention, though, Kaisa goes on to lay out some more important information. He gives another circumlocution, calling the oblation board by the name the Dust Hunters, which prompts the question we've been asking for a long time. What is this dust? I like to hear that in Fartacorm's voice, though I'm not entirely sure which of the masks. That demonstrative of curiosity is one he's used before to ask Lyra, this dust, did it call it anything else? But it's also going to be used by John Fa here too, so anyway. Kaiser's answer. It comes from the sky. Some say it has always been there. Some say it is newly falling. What is certain is that when people become aware of it, a great fear comes over them, and they'll stop at nothing to discover what it is. But it is not of any concern to witches. The voice actor really plays up the goose's superciliousness. Uh, but not only does Kaiser not really answer the admittedly difficult question, he holds aloof from further inquiry about dust. Why that dismissive conclusion? Now, the narrator has already told us Lyra is fascinated by dust. We'll eventually know more about it than anyone. And the witches are concerned with her, to say the least. So I see no alternatives here, but that Kaiser is quite mistaken witches are concerned by dust, they just don't realize it, or else he's deliberately obfuscating to keep Lyra in crucial ignorance and innocence. Like Dr. Lancelli is saying, the heliotheometer hasn't been used seriously for some centuries. But well, witches aren't bothered by dust, okay, fine, while everyone else is hunting it. But what witches can see, that no one else, ordinary humans, do not, is a kind of emanation from the Dust Hunter's work. Names the place Bolvanger, Fields of Evil. Get it defined and described here. How witches can see the air of hatred and fear and animals to avoid it. Well, they call it the station. People work there. We're told the Tartars that defend it are unpracticed. And of course they are. They've been repeatedly hinted at, but have not, as to this point, been incorporated into the story, so how could they have been keeping in practice? Finally, Lyra gets to ask, why do the witches talk about me? And the initial answer, because of her father and his knowledge, reminds us of Father Quorum's best guess at answering Dr. Lancelius's question, do you know who this child is? but it also brings us back to her dream, so mysteriously interrupted. As to what Azriel's up to, what other worlds he is seeking, following a kind of fairy tale convention, it takes three guesses for us to get there. Other worlds, John Foss said. Pardon me, sir, but what worlds would those be? Do you mean the stars? Indeed, no. Perhaps the world of spirits, said Father Quorum, nor that. Is it the city in the lights, said Lyra? It is, ain't it? The goose turned his stately head toward her. His eyes were black, surrounded by a thin line of pure sky blue, and their gaze was intense. Yes, he said. Though it's a minor thing, maybe. Part of what must be strange about the demon being alone 
That's how all along we've seen Lyra's ability to read people's emotions from their demons. But Kaisa is so impassive. Serafina Pecola is not even physically present. That uncanniness is reinforced in what the demon does next. Witches have known of the other worlds for thousands of years. You can see them sometimes in the Northern Lights. They aren't part of this universe at all. Even the furthest stars are part of this universe. But the lights show us a different universe entirely. Not further away, but interpenetrating with this one. Here, on this deck, millions of other universes exist, unaware of one another. He raised his wings and spread them wide before folding them again. There, he said, I have just brushed ten million other worlds, and they knew nothing of it. We are as close as a heartbeat, but we can never touch or see or hear the, these other worlds except in the northern lights. And why there, said Farquhar, because the charged particles in the aurora have the property of making the matter of this world thin, so that we can see through it for a brief time. Witches have always known this, but we seldom speak of it. My father believes in it, Lyra said. I know because I heard him talking and showing pictures of the aurora. Is this anything to do with dust? said John Fa. Who can say? said the goose demon. Again, a lot of issues here. For one thing, our universe, among others, will see, is by no means unaware of theirs. But the illustration of the wing spread, dramatic as Azriel's use of the pictures that we're reminded of here, may have a different point. Not that we're unaware, but that we are close as a heartbeat, like Pan and Lyra to one another, yet unlike them, maybe more like the witch and her demon right now, we cannot touch, cannot reach across the space. So John Father, thinking like a storyteller, more so than in the past, raises that question about the Northern Lights relation to dust, but the drama of Lord Asriel's intention overwhelms all else. They think he intends to use dust in some way in order to make a bridge between this world and the world beyond the aurora. conversation shifts to the church, its fear, its still obscure plans, how these led up to the bargain with the bears to imprison Lord Asriel in exchange for king-making. The upshot is that whatever witches are concerned with, their complicated politics, their ongoing war in the spirit world, they're nevertheless presented as more comprehensible in their motives than the bears, or the church for that matter. Witches may separate themselves and travel great distances from their demons, but bears have no demons. Witches may allow the dust hunters to set up stations, but bears are entirely mercenary in all their dealings with the outside world, unless their new king has established some new order. Lyra, true to form, butts in at this point, Not all bears. There's one who ain't on Svalbard at all. He's an outcast bear, and he's going to come with us. Goose gave Lyra another of his piercing looks. This time she could feel his cold surprise. Farquharm shifted uncomfortably and said, The fact is, Lyra, I don't think he is. We heard he's serving out a term as an indentured laborer. He ain't free, as we thought he might be. He's under sentence. Till he's discharged, he won't be free to come, armor or no armor. He won't never have that back, either. A different story. That's what John Foss says next. Lyra says, they tricked him. They made him drunk and stole it away. We heard a different story, said John Foss. He's a dangerous rogue, is what we heard. So story 
used in a different connotation than we've seen before here, some combination of the kinds of rumors that grew up around the gobblers or around Lyra herself, along with the competing kinds of arguments that we saw debated by the Egyptians at their ropings. At stake in this kind of story is not just what is or why, the kinds of questions we've been asking in the scene, but about how to judge between competing answers to those questions and what to do about it. As John Foss said back in the roping, talk all we may, we won't change out, we must act if we want to change things. The grounds for acting are disputed here. Stymieing the noble but pragmatic John Fa. But for Lyra, the side of truth and justice is clear, and there's a clear arbiter in this dispute. If Lyra was passionate, she could hardly speak for indignation. If the alethiometer says something, I know it's true, and I asked it, and it said that he was telling the truth, they did trick him, and they're telling lies, and not him. I believe him, Lord Fa, Fartacorum. You saw him too, and you believe him, don't you? I thought I did, child. I ain't so certain of things as you are. In a story which is so concerned with revolt against authority, a story crafted by a masterful pilfering author, the alethiometer's authority is beyond question. As Farnacorum has pointed out, whether we're reading it right is the only question. That's a subtle art. But Lyra has repeatedly proved her ability. We have no reason to doubt her confidence. Her passionate indignation speaks for itself. Belief in this situation actually seems unproblematic for the reader. In the innocence of messiness of grown-up politics, at least, Regardless of the townspeople killed and their bond over the bear until he pays off the blood money, guild, the word, that is staving off with more or less success those inveterate vengeances and feuds in northern sagas, to Lyra, the matter is simple. Yorick was unjustly enslaved and must be freed almost fundamentalist attitude here. Lyra's authoritative interpretation makes her intransigent on this touchy point. The men, while sympathetic, aren't so sure. They're aware, meanwhile, that the townspeople, like the church, operate from a politics of fear, and all the while that the bear, angrier and angrier, like the spy fly, like any long festering grievance, cannot be set free or set right for fear of his retribution. We readers, like the witch's demon, observe this conundrum. They all, including Lyra, become aware of him then, a ghostly judge, impassive in their wrestling with the truth, the law, the sense that what they decide now might make all the difference. He questions the trustworthiness of such a bear, though not that of the alethiometer, but concludes, you must decide for yourselves, echoing what Dr. Lincelius had said about Lyra and her destiny. Practical concerns about ways and means jostle with the grand vision of the Northern Lights, now disclosing not only the city in another world, but also Lord Azriel's intention to build a bridge to it. This crucial scene closes as it opened, with another kind of dream. Lyra's own vision of having once freed the bear and the captive kids, bringing her great father the alethiometer, along with her ability to read it. Together, these in Lyra's mind will comprise authoritative truth. We'll learn further along that one form of this authority is just what Azriel has proposed to destroy say, probably should say, a lot more about that scene with the goose demon and just before it, the vision of the northern lights, but maybe we can come back to that later. The second half of this chapter deals with the actual recovery of the armor. It opens with a hint of that frustration Lyra has felt before. 
when she was with Miss Coulter and then with the Egyptians, how nothing was moving. The next best thing, of course, is telling stories. And so she explains in response to Tony Costa's questions about the bear. But in the midst of this invitation to Lyra, someone else appears. So you've spoken to old Yarick, he said. She looked at the newcomer with surprise. He was a tall, lean man with a thin black mustache and narrow blue eyes, and a perpetual expression of distant and sardonic amusement. She felt strongly about him at once, but she wasn't sure whether it was liking she felt or dislike. His demon was a shabby hair, as thin and tough-looking as he was. He held out his hand, and she took it warily. Lee Scoresby, he said. Yaronot, she exclaimed. Where's your balloon? Can I go up in it? <laughs> uh, the sardonic amusement connects him immediately to Lord Asriel. Perhaps this helps account for Lyra's quantity of emotion, strong in its absolute value, undetermined as to its plus or minus sign. Now, Lee Scoresby's name is one Pullman does explain. I most recently came across this in the delightfully titled Without Lyra we would understand neither the New nor the Old Testament, unquote. Exegesis Allegory and Reading the Golden Compass by Shelley King, where she quotes As for the names, some come with their names already attached, like Lyra. I don't know why. Others you have to find, like Lee Scoresby. The balloonist. This came from two places. Lee, from the actor Lee Van Cleef, who worked alongside Clint Eastwood in the Spaghetti Westerns of the 1960s. As for the Scoresby, this is from the Arctic explorer William Scoresby, which gives you the Texan explorer, who I imagine my character to be. But that's really... Yeah, they're here nor there. Lyra's first question is more to the point. Where's your balloon? She'll ask the same thing again at the end of the chapter, reinforcing Lee's aerial, ethereal, fun quality. In fact, in the little book Once Upon a Time in the North, he'll quip, uh, Why, I'm the captain's guardian angel. You want to put that stick down? <laughs> uh, and that's certainly how he operates in this chapter as well. Under cover of his leisure domain with the cards, recalling how Lyra's story was once gathered up like cards, but how much more skillful in the aeronaut's case. Under that cover, his demon, Hester, gets things moving again. Go straight to the bear and tell him direct. As soon as they know what's going on, they'll move his armor somewhere else. Lyra got up, taking her spice cake with her, and no one noticed. Lee Scoresby was already dealing cards, and every suspicious eye was on his hands. And so Lyra goes. In the dull light, fading through an endless afternoon, she found her way to the sledge depot. It was something she knew she had to do, but she felt uneasy about it, and afraid, too. So uneasy, but knowing she had to, she approaches that place where things meant for movement are gathered when they're broken down. The mere image here of her encounter with the goose demon under the aurora, aurora, the root meaning being dawn, this time she meets the bear under the setting sun, not by a concatenation of logical steps from some ineffable, no particular reason, but rather out of a forcible act of will against her unwillingness, but in line with her belief brings her here. Does it look any less, however different, like she's following her destiny unknowingly? She observes, unnoticed at first, York's skill with metals, 
microcosm of her father's uncanny power of activity. Both these characters foreshadowing in some ways her meeting with a character named Will. In response to Yorick's awareness of her when it comes, she experiences cold fear. She sees the distance between them collapsed by swiftness and size. In her imagination, the fence is no more than a cobweb. In the face of her reluctance to proceed with what she knows she has to do, Pan takes charge. She almost turned and ran away, but Pantalaimon said, Stop. Let me go and talk to him. He was a turn, and before she could answer, he'd flown off the fence and down to the icy ground beyond it. There was an open gate a little way along, and Lyra could have followed him, but she hung back uneasily. Pantalaimon looked at her and then became a badger. She knew what he was doing. Demons could move no more than a few yards from the humans, and if she stood by the fence and he remained a bird, he wouldn't get near the bear. So he was going to pull. From a turn to a badger, Pan encompasses the vertical axis from heaven to earth, resolving to undergo a voluntary suffering. With its compression of physical and emotional pain, longing and relief, this scene profoundly moved and puzzled me when I first read it. It's closer to bringing me to tears probably than that description of the aurora, beautiful as that is. I didn't get it as a kid. Maybe I don't get it now, but I know something important is going on here. And that seems to be the narrator's intention, just that, that sense, although undefined. In some respects, Lyra and Pan get that as well as I, as uh, the experience of, of Yorick. I think now, reading it as the counterpart to the scene with the witch's demon under the aurora does shed some light on what's going on here. There, Lyra had total confidence in her conceptual sense of the right thing to do. Here, in her devotion to Pantalaimon, she finds the determination to act on that sense, overcoming her inertia. Whether we call it working within destiny or the working out of choice, free will, she follows that part of herself represented, indeed embodied by Pan, which leads her across the barrier of her own anxiety through the open gate. She regains wholeness, illustrating just what she promises to the bear to reunite him with his soul, his armor and all that it represents. Besides reminding us not just of the preceding scene, but also of the scholars in the crypt, the skulls and the coins, this moment also foreshadows what we'll soon learn about what happens at Bolvanger. And in a way, even more, it foreshadows the truth about the witch power of separation as well. Just to read a little of this. Don't pan. But he didn't stop. The bear watched, motionless. The pain in Lyra's heart grew more and more unbearable, and a sob of longing rose in her throat. Pan. Then she was through the gate, scrambling over the icy mud toward him, and he turned into a wildcat and sprang up into her arms, and they were clinging together tightly, with little shaky sounds of unhappiness coming from them both. I thought you really would. No, I couldn't believe how much it hurt. And then she brushed the tears away angrily and sniffed hard. He nestled in her arms, and she knew she would rather die than let them be parted and face that sadness again. It would send her mad with grief and terror. If she died, they'd still be together, like the scholars in the crypt at Jordan. Then girl and demon looked up at the solitary bear. He had no demon. He was alone, always alone. She felt such a stir of pity and gentleness for him that she almost reached out to touch his matted pelt, and only a sense of courtesy toward those cold, ferocious eyes prevented her. She couldn't believe, and then she knew she would rather die. So this is one step beyond conceptual belief, let's say, and beyond uh, theoretical knowledge of mortality. There's a kind of acceptance, the consequences of acting on it, 
and an acceptance of mortality over against the still more catastrophic separations which would follow from not acting on one's deep beliefs. Separations she'll nevertheless have to face, and among them the great betrayals foreseen by the Master of Jordan. So when these happen, something still stronger will have to be forged within her, will have to wake up within her, capable of embracing particular relationships to Pan, to Roger, to Will, and that thing, I would tentatively call it her relationship to the truth. But take a lot more time to really kind of explain, I guess, what I mean by that, or figure out what I mean by that, and I'm coming to sort of the limits of what I'm able to put into words, because again, I think that that's an embodied sort of truth that we're seeing in the story here, but uh, and we'll see a much more later, if we get there. <laughs> Again, we could read a lot into this critical scene. And Pullman certainly invites that and, and speaks about this scene as one of his favorite moments in the book, uh, quite aside from its philosophical ramifications. Uh, coming to the limits of what we can really say about this, because I think that that's an embodied sort of truth that we're seeing in the story, but uh, again, we could say a lot more and read a lot more into this critical scene. Pullman certainly invites it. He speaks about these kinds of scenes as some of his favorite to write when characters meet, uh, as he puts it in his uh, darkness visible interview, of which only the first part seems to be available anymore on Amazon.com. Uh, scenes where important characters come together for the first time have a particular charge, and they're very exciting to write. Uh, I know this isn't the first meeting between the two, but I think uh, the point still applies. In this moment, they come together. Lyra is honest, telling Yorick about the symbol reader and where the armor is, quickly arriving at an agreement with him. Yet, True to her nature, she interposes a question born of curiosity before finalizing their terms of this agreement. I... She didn't mean to be nosy, but she couldn't help being curious. She said, Why don't you just make some more armor out of this metal here, Yorick Birnison? Because it's worthless. Look, he said, and lifting the engine cover with one paw, he extended a claw on the other hand and ripped right through it like a can opener. My armor is made of sky iron, made for me. A bear's armor is his soul, just as your demon is your soul. You might as well take him away, indicating Pentalion, and replace him with a doll full of sawdust. That is the difference. Now, where is my armor? Uh, so, he calls it Sky Iron. And like his speech pattern talking about child cutters or the goose talking about dust hunters, it's a compound kind of word, phrase. And the other end of the moral spectrum from those ones, though, the Sky Iron seems to be iron derived from meteorites. Implicit in the question she asks, is the way in which the bears make their own souls. The idea is elaborated a bit later in this book and mentions it again in that Once Upon a Time in the North. Um, in that story, York only has his helmet as a young bear, uh, the alethiometer's symbol for war. <laughs> also contained in the conversation here is the idea of a replacement demon, something We'll see all too soon, though not as a doll full of sawdust. Lyra imposes further conditions, and Yorick promises not to take vengeance. She trusts him, as he trusts her. Her tone as she makes these demands is innocent, as if she's repeating what she's heard when she's been reprimanded, no doubt, 
And when you think about what it means to say you believe things as a child, well, a child is given the best of the adults who have cared for her and uh, imitates that, I think, within certain limitations. So then we come to the priest's house uh, where he's working on the armor because he thinks there's a spirit in it. Yorick doesn't go there right away, though. He's prepared to work a few more minutes, having given his word, but Lyra gives him an out. I must work till sunset, he said. I gave my word this morning to the master here. I still owe a few minutes' work. The sun set where I am, she pointed out, because from her point of view it had vanished behind the rocky headland to the southwest. He dropped to all fours. It's true, he said, with his face now in shadow like hers. What's your name, child? Lyra Belacqua. Then I owe you a debt, Lyra Belacqua, he said. Only then does he take off. Pan goes into pursuit as a seagull. That reminds us, of, reminds us of that conversation with Jerry uh, about setting, uh, sorry, settling, uh, uh, letting you know what kind of a person you are. They go by the Sisselman's house, where the sentry provides a note of comic clumsiness. Perhaps it's to help distinguish this chase, as if chasing a bear weren't enough difference, from the previous chase scene uh, in throwing nets. Instead of the stress of that episode, I think we're meant to feel exuberance here. Kind of like the exuberance a demon could feel if it were allowed to fly as far as fast as it wanted and not uh, be held back as long as this person can keep up or by doing whatever mysterious magic the witches do to be a part and yet whole. Those costly bricks of the priest's the priest's house are like the great cost of importing coal spirit to Bullvanger. They suggest conspicuous consumption on the part of the church and the dust hunters. Also the arrogance of such profligacy, the uh, unexpectedness of a big bad bear rather than wolf coming to uh, take what's inside the house out again. <laughs> you see the house shaking and hear the roars and cries this all looks a bit like that exorcism that the priest had been trying to perform all along. <clears throat> As if fired from a cannon, the priest himself came hurtling out with his pelican demon in a wild flutter of feathers and injured pride. Lara heard orders shouted and turned to see a squad of armed policemen hurrying around the corner, some with pistols and some with rifles, and not far behind them came John Fa and, far, and, the, sorry, and the stout, fussy figure of the Sisselman. Of course, Father Quorum is a bit slower, can't keep up. A rending, splintering sound made them all look back at the house. A window at ground level, obviously opening on a cellar, was being wrenched apart with a crash of glass and a screech of tearing wood. The sentry who'd followed Yorick Birnison into the house came running out and stood to face the cellar window, rifle at his shoulder, and then the window tore open completely, and out climbed Yorick Birnison, the bear in armor. Without it, he was formidable. With it, he was terrifying. It was rust red and crudely riveted together, great sheets and plates of dented, discolored metal that scraped and screeched as they rode over one another. The helmet was pointed like his muzzle, slits for eyes, and it left the lower part of his jaw bare for tearing and biting. Again, we can see the, piece, the priest and the sisselman are not to be taken seriously, and probably not this whole gang of policemen either, but that cellar window, not a cellar door, being torn off, and the emergence of the barren armor gives us a kind of terrifying rhetorical balance that emphasizes the emotive charge of this moment. That rhetorical balance then becomes performative as the bear uh, shakes the bullets off like raindrops and lunged forward in a screech and clang of metal 
before the sentry could escape and knocked him to the ground. His demon, a husky dog, darted at the bear's throat, but Yorick Birneson took no more notice of him than he would of a fly, and dragging the sentry to him with one vast paw, he bent and enclosed his head in his jaws. Lyra could see exactly what would happen next. He'd crush the man's skull like an egg, and there would follow a bloody fight, more deaths, more delay, and they would never get free, with or without the bear. So the moment hangs in balance as she sees what will happen, then confirmed later by York that that is just what would have happened, and he uses the exact same words, cracking about cracking the man's skull like an egg. Um, now we get that next close parallel to the waking up for no reason, as quoting here again, without even thinking. She darted forward and put her hand on the one vulnerable spot in the bear's armor, the gap that appeared between the helmet and the great plate over his shoulders when he bent his head, where she could see the yellow-white fur dimly between the rusty edges of metal. She dug her fingers in. The pantaliman instantly flew to the same spot and became a wildcat, crouched to defend her. But Yorick Birneson was still. The riflemen held their fire. So it all hangs in a balance here. Again, uh, without logical reason, acting on impulse, Lyra intervenes. Uh, she physically touches Yorick, which she didn't do before. Pan becomes a wildcat, which she was before, when they were reunited in the yard. Of course, they couldn't actually hurt Yorick, but in figurative sense, she has placed her hand on the one vulnerable spot in his armor. She can immediately call in that debt that he owes her. And he again recognizes her seriousness and respects it. With me is a phrase she'll repeat thrice, like a charm, and it works. From the viewpoint of the onlookers, it works like magic. No one else moved. They watched the bear turn away from his victim at the bidding of the girl with the cat demon. And then they shuffled aside to make room as Yorick Birneson padded heavily through the midst of them at Lyra's side and made for the harbor. Her mind was all on him, and she didn't see the confusion behind her, the fear and the anger that rose up safely when he was gone. She walked with him, and Pantalaimon padded ahead of them both, as if to clear the way. So I think a lot of allegorical things we could do here, but part of what's happening too is that the story is being formulated amongst the townspeople already of what just happened. They can save face as long as something uncanny went on, that uh, it's not the bear that's getting away from them, it's this mysterious person, uh, this girl who's uh, done some sort of witchcraft. And whether there is something efficacious going on or it's simply a, a byproduct of the intensity of the moment, Lyra makes Yorick her single-minded concern. It looks much like reading the alethiometer on the one hand and his uh, fur showing through the armor. It looks to me kind of like the city and the lights uh, showing through the aurora. Um, again, the drama of the moment hangs curiously with the helmet clanging on the ground and the bear's disappearance into the water without a word. So, at the end of this chapter, Lyra finds herself back where she started, though so much has happened in a short time, again telling the Egyptians about the bear. Like a parade, the town leaders begin to appear, and so does Lee, once more, rather ethereally, loafing at his ease with his absurdly long pistol, his talk of the bear going to find some lubrication. Then York reappears, gives his armor, kind of combination anabaptism and anointment, packing it with the seal fat. He's noncommittal towards Lee's irreverent quip about them being hired hands. And, uh, we get another of the narrator's preferred phrases here. 
taking not the slightest notice. Uh, something that you can see everywhere once you start looking for it. The word notice or, or related words about attention and affecting to not take notice in this case. Uh, Yorick and the Sisselman's grudging acceptance of that fate accompli of the bear's freedom. Then at last we get that image of him putting on the armor as if it were silk robes. He's ready. Meanwhile, Egyptians are too. John Fah has assembled them Thundercat style. Um, there's a beautiful passage that closes us out here. So in less than half an hour, the expedition was on its way northward under a sky peopled with millions of stars and a glaring moon Sledges bumped and clattered over the ruts and stones until they reached clear snow at the edge of town. Then the sound changed to a quiet crunch of snow and creak of timber. The dogs began to step out eagerly, and the motion became swift and smooth. Lyra, wrapped up so thickly in the back of Fartacorum's sledge that only her eyes were exposed, whispered to Pantalaimon, Can you see Yorick? He's padding along beside Lee Scoresby's sledge, the demon replied looking back in his ermine form as he clung to her wolverine fur hood. Ahead of them, over the mountains to the north, the pale arcs and loops of the northern lights began to glow and tremble. Lyra saw through half-closed eyes, and felt a sleepy thrill of perfect happiness to be speeding north under the aurora. Perfect happiness. I think we have to understand it in the context of this being pretty much literally a wish come true for her. Um, something that Pullman speaks of movingly in his autobiographical sketch, something that he illustrates now and again in these stories, um, these kinds of moments. It's one that may well uh, call to mind a scene from My Antonia by Willa Cather, and uh, Jim is sitting up against the pumpkin in the garden, a scene that when he ever, whenever he read it, a uh, fellow teacher of mine, uh, Ed Denny, used to weep openly in front of his classes. Um, but that's not the final note of the chapter. It's this very strange conclusion, cliffhanger here, which I don't think ever gets mentioned again. <laughs> Pantalaimon struggled against her sleepiness, but it was too strong. He curled up as a mouse inside her hood. He could tell her when they woke. And it was probably a martin, or a dream, or some kind of harmless local spirit. But something was following the train of sledges, swinging lightly from branch to branch of the close clustering pine trees. And it put him uneasily in mind of a monkey. So, Martin... Uh, spoiler, I think what Lyra's demon will eventually settle as. Um, as far as we know, this is not the golden monkey. Um, or if it is, it's uh, doing a very good job of staying in the background a lot better job than Gollum in uh, Lord of the Rings. But before we all go home and read the newspaper as... Uh, Lee Scoresby, excellent advice would have us. I thought we might do a little different kind of recess this week. Um, like in most of these chapters, there isn't that much action after all. Um, so what we would get to play would sort of play out based on things that we hear about instead. Um, playing out things that we hear from the goose demon. Playing out things that we hear... Uh, from the bear and uh, from Lee Scoresby. But instead, I thought this week we could do a short uh, review of some of these texts that I've been suggesting and drawing from throughout this series. Particularly, I've taken some time this week to catch up on some academic studies which are uh, an important aspect of this project, which I think I've been giving a little bit short shrift to, 
And uh, so I quoted something quoted in one of the essays in a book called His Dark Materials Illuminated. Subtitle is Critical Essays on Philip Pullman's Trilogy. It's edited by uh, Millicent Lenz with Carol Scott. Uh, it looks like Millicent Lenz actually passed away in the course of compiling this uh, anthology. Um, and so Carol Scott stepped in to uh, complete it. She, um, I, as far as I know, still teaches at uh, the Children's Literature Program at San Diego State University. Um, although I guess I need to look that up still. Uh, I don't believe I've tried to get in touch with any of the authors in this uh, anthology yet. It's a little bit dated now, um, being published uh, in 2005. So, uh, again, a lot has happened since then, but I think it's still a valuable resource. It's got some really high praise, or carries some high praise from um, other academics, and um, I'd be curious to know uh, how much um, these essays that are in here have been cited uh, in later studies and other studies by other people. Um, I don't know how many readers of this book there might be out there listening, but I would be very curious to hear what people had uh, thought about the scholarship, what people do think about the scholarship that, that's out there, the academic studies of Pullman that exist already. Um, I've only just begun to wade into some of this uh, field, um, and I acknowledge that I am not a professional academic, um, although I do think of myself as a serious scholar as well as a fan of Pullman's work. Um, I have to say that I was not impressed by uh, a lot of what I read in this. Um, I was a little bit disappointed by some of the um, particularly dismissive um, treatments of authors who are frequently compared to Pullman. Um, I just didn't think they were able to go into the sufficient uh, depth that those authors would really require, um, given the short you know, space of this kind of format of, of, of short essays that are then put together in a book. Um, I think that you get a fair bit of breadth of scholarship by doing things this way, but you, you sacrifice a lot of depth. Um, I know that I probably am open to just that criticism as well, and the kind of thing I'm doing here, we're trying to kind of comment on and, and gloss uh, a lot of the book, um, maybe maybe too much of the book. Anyway, my uh, my only answer to that, I suppose, is that it's in many ways I think of it as a preliminary um, sketch of what ought to be uh, a few much uh, much more in-depth um, studies, which I. I hope to be able to accomplish as I'm going along here. Um, I'll uh, nevertheless, like I say, be very interested to hear from other readers of his Dark Materials Illuminated or of other scholarship that is out there. Um, I would stack over against it the kind of study that is performed by Verlin Flieger in uh, her work Splintered Light. Um, language and Logos in Tolkien's world. Um, I know it's maybe not a, really a fair comparison. This is a, a giant in the field and um, a, a seminal work, uh, but I, I think that is, is much more the kind of uh, investigation into Pullman that I would love to see um, and if such an investigation is out there already, I would love to be directed to it because because it might be I just don't know. Uh, I know that there is something called um, darkness visible, uh, a book length treatment of Pullman that that's out there um, alongside this short uh, interview that actually has the same name. <laughs> um, but anyway, that is I think my uh, my two cents on scholarship and 
that is the best I've been able to come up with this week for recess. I'll uh, commend to you again Pullman's shorter stories, um, Once Upon a Time in the North particularly, I think goes nicely with this chapter. And uh, I think that would be a fun one to be able to unlock, to play as Lee Scoresby uh, through that story uh, by doing something in this part of the chapter. I don't know, maybe beating him at cards or something. It has to be something very difficult, of course. Anyway, I'll, uh, I'll let you guys go. I uh, hope you enjoy, and I uh, hope you have a good week.